Welcome everybody to On Crime and Punishment. This is a podcast brought to you by the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. This is the final podcast in our summer series on COVID in Canadian prisons. And in this one, Dr. Kevin Haggerty of the Department of Sociology at the University of Alberta is chatting with Dr. Luca Berardi and Joanna Cajas about the experience of having loved ones in prison during the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store that helps with the algorithm and subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. You can also follow us on Twitter at CCR underscore U of A, and just keep up with all of those different platforms. We'll be announcing soon things that are going on at the Center for Criminological Research in the coming year. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, Welcome for uh, another installment of our discussion series or podcast series uh, on uh, developments related to COVID and incarceration. This is a series that's being organized by the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. And to date, we've had uh, a series of podcasts. Uh, Most of them should be up by now or will be up soon, uh, looking at this issue from a number of different angles. So we've had discussions about uh, concerns about community reintegration. We've had uh, discussions about differential impact of the situation related to race. Uh, We've had uh, a podcast that just recently went up on um, how COVID has changed the uh, court system. So those should be up and available. Uh, For those of you who wonder where we are, uh, we are recording this very early June. Uh, The the pandemic has been with us now for over a year. And in Canada, uh, we're probably at the stage now where most people, if they wanted to, could or they have their first vaccine and we're starting to move for for those who want it into the second vaccine. Uh, We just, there was just a report released earlier, I guess last week about how approximately 70% of incarcerated folks in Canada have now been vaccinated. So just for us, just to situate where we are uh, for our discussion today, those are some sort of basic facts. Uh, Today, I'm extremely happy to be joined by Joanne uh, Cahayas and Luca Berardi, and uh, I will leave it to them to introduce themselves. So maybe Joanne, why don't you just tell us uh, who you are and your interests or your situation? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So um, uh, I I have a, a unique background. <laughs> so I I worked uh, for the Correctional Service of Canada for about 10 years, and then even a little bit in in provincial corrections. Um, And uh, during that time, I met my husband, who uh, was incarcerated with a 57-year sentence, and um, we fell in love. So... (laughs) And uh, we decided to see where the the relationship would go. And... um, we're now coming up on 13 years uh, of being together, which means that we stuck with it and in the process learned a lot. 
So that's me. Excellent, thank you. And Luca. Sure, uh, thanks Kevin for having us. Um, so I'm an assistant professor uh, at McMaster University. Uh, I'm a criminologist or sociologist and urban ethnographer, depend depending on the day, um, each and all of those things. Um, my doctoral work was uh, like a five-year ethnographic study uh, of a Toronto social housing project that was sort of plagued by gun violence. And so in the midst of that five years, I studied a lot of, a lot of things. Um, I did really like a neighborhood study. Uh, so things like social exclusion and marginalization, precarious employment, police community relationships, the local drug trade and sex trade. Um, but really my focus became this issue of gun violence. And um, essentially I followed the lives of about 20 young black men in this neighborhood uh, to try and understand how they negotiated this kind of ongoing threat of lethal violence. And so my research, that research really put me face to face with people who are sort of experiencing very serious and recurring victimization and trauma and loss, but also an incredible resilience to sort of press forward and find ways to adapt to the different challenges uh, that they faced. And so as I'm sure you've gathered from that, my primary sort of area of expertise is not prisons or imprisonment. Um, but when the University of Alberta prison project kicked off, I sort of became part of the, the research team, first as a, a graduate student and now as a faculty member and a collaborator. And so I'm not going to get into the history of the UAPP because I think we've probably already done that uh, with other members of, of the UAPP here. Uh, but I do want to quickly provide just a little bit of context for the study that we, we did, which is um, our loved ones and COVID-19 study, um, because we're going to be talking a bit about that today. Um, and so basically when COVID-19 hit, um, the University of Alberta Prison Project was in the midst of data collection in a federal prison in Alberta. And so understandably at that time, uh, CSC asked us to stop all research inside of their institutions, which we obviously complied with. Now, since the very start of the UAPP, uh, we were being contacted by the loved ones of prisoners and they were asking us if we could widen our scope, right? Uh, the scope of the study uh, on prisons to include also the experiences of non-incarcerated family members or loved ones. And this is something that we as a research team were always interested in doing, but to be honest, we just, I don't think had the resources to undertake that project in tandem with our research inside uh, provincial and federal prisons. We just didn't have the personnel to do it. But when the pandemic hit and research inside prisons stopped, several loved ones um, contacted us once again. And so the UAPP quickly pivoted uh, and we created a study examining the sort of collateral consequences of incarceration on loved ones with a particular focus on how the pandemic itself has affected carceral relations. And so in terms of the study itself, it was a longitudinal study. Uh, so we interviewed about 40 loved ones of incarcerated people in Canada uh, between April 2020 and January uh, 2021. And we basically started interviewing loved ones um, on online platforms or over the telephone right at the beginning of the pandemic and then continued every two weeks and then eventually once a month until about uh, January, 2021. So over about 10 months. 
And so that's a bit of background information uh, about me and the project that I think it's, in, it's important for listeners to have. Um, I should also note that while we've completed the data collection on the study, we still haven't coded and analyzed the large data set. And so I may not have all of the answers to your questions, Kevin, uh, but I can certainly try to provide some anecdotes uh, that were shared uh, with the research team. So I'll, I'll end there. Excellent, thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, I, as you know, I was part of that study and while the study ended, one of the, the side benefits of it is that we've been able to sort of maintain contact with a number of people sort of that maybe we didn't know or didn't know as well kind of prior to this. So, yeah. So I think as um, our listeners will have discerned, we're interested today particularly about COVID and loved ones and what we can learn about their experience, but also what they've learned uh, about the current situation in prison from their loved ones. And maybe I'll just turn to Joanne, uh, who, you know, your sense from talking with your husband or, or more generally about how you, the, what is the contemporary situation uh, in prison for incarcerated folks or for loved ones? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. Uh, I just, I just want to add that uh, something that I probably should have added, and that is that I, I don't have my husband, only my husband as a source of information. I also belong to a, um, a support group for families of an, an incarcerated people. And uh, I've belonged to that for 10 years now, over 10 years now. And, um, and I, I volunteer to uh, pretty much run it at this point. And so I have people calling me all the time and uh, other than actual uh, group sessions that we do, there's, there's twice a month. Um, and so I, I get a lot of information from those folks um, and uh, they try and get a lot of information from me. <laughs> and sometimes I can't answer questions either <laughs> because there's a lot of unknowns. Um, but uh, just to, to answer your question, um, there's, uh, I think uh, right from the beginning, the, the thing that was affected the most, and by the way, my husband was incarcerated at the beginning last year, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, but he is no longer incarcerated. He's on day parole right now. Um, so right at the beginning, I experienced it the same as everyone else. And one of the things that obviously ended right away was visits. And um, so there were no visits um, and actually have been no visits for almost the entirety of the pandemic, except for two months, um, August to uh, October last year, where they experimented with uh, having a few visits. And the visits were, <laughs> I don't know if you can call them visits. I, I'm not sure how many people have been in a, in a visiting room in an institution, but they have these, um, these big round tables and a few years back, they became standardized across the country. So it's all the same, <laughs> these round tables. And they're like, oh, I would say, well, they're definitely more than six feet apart. <laughs> and they would have uh, the visitor sit at one of them on one side and then the person they were visiting sit at another one on the other side. So they're more like, you know, <laughs> 12 feet apart. <laughs> and they pretty much had to yell at each other. 
for to to you know and then of course there's there was never any privacy when you visit because if there's a microphone right in the middle of the table uh but that's privacy from staff and they, most of the time they're not listening anyways or whatever but now you don't have privacy from anybody anybody else in the visiting room right so and the visits were an hour and a half at most institutions from what I gather. And it just wasn't worth it for many people uh, it, because many people have to travel a lot longer uh, than an hour and a half really to, to get to the institution and to only have a, that short a visit and then have to turn around and come back. Um, you know, it just didn't make sense for a lot of folks. So, so that's one of the things. Um, there were also uh, one thing that really ramped up. It didn't start during the pandemic. It had started before, but it really ramped up was video visits. Right. And um, the, the pandemic affected those too, because of course now there was a lot, of, a lot more demand. It used to be that people who lived far away would partake in video visits, but the people that were you know, within the same province or whatever, would would go in person. And now everybody wanted video visits, but they only had one, you know, one installation. So <laughs> they, they um, it was very difficult to to get appointments for those. And maybe I'll just uh, sorry interrupt you there. Maybe you can describe for people who don't know what what is a what are the logistics of a video visit? Are you on your own home computer, or I mean, maybe describe what that's like. Yeah, so first of all, you do have to have your own home computer. It's uh, using the uh, Cisco WebEx platform, which isn't a very good one. <laughs> it's it, Everybody sounds like a robot, if, when it works, because uh, it doesn't always work. And um, and the person is there, usually in the visiting room. I, in my experience, that's what, it, what it's been. Um, and then you know how, you know, on a video platform, you, you can actually see you know, who's listening in. So you not only see your loved one, but then you see this other little, you know, circle there <laughs> of the staff member, mm. you know, listening to everything you say. <laughs> it's very disconcerting. And uh, I did I did a couple and that's it. I just said, no, no thanks, <laughs> I'm not interested. That was at the beginning of the pandemic that I did a couple. Um, I think there are some institutions that have video visits kind of established that already had that. System, yeah, they had it. But but you had to actually drive to a particular location where they have 50 phones or videos set up. So this was this was, I guess, at least on a home computer, but again, not everyone has the setup or the technological abilities and capacity and all that kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah. 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 So you were talking about visits, um, phone calls. Uh, were there other types of important developments? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just want to say, too, that I'm talking about the Correctional Service of Canada mostly because that's where my experience is, no. mostly. But I've heard from people who have loved ones in provincial that they have almost zero, they have no visits at all. They've had no visits, no ability to see the person and only phone calls. And mm -hmm. phone calls um, in provincial often are more expensive and they're harder to access. So yeah, I, I, there is that to consider as well. Um, I just wanna say, I, would, I wanna give an anecdote. So phone calls were 
have been uh, a, a lifeline for my husband and me. Um, th that's really our our uh, our go-to form of contact. And of course, there's 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 been other other times where phone calls were interrupted during lockdowns, and and COVID has increased the number of lockdowns. Um, and so I, I've heard from many people um, in institutions that you know, where there were outbreaks that they didn't hear from their loved ones for a very long time because they were locked down and they were given a choice, uh, you know, in 20 minutes to either make a phone call or have a shower. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So, um, and I, I think, you know, I think you've heard about this in, in this podcast before, but I'm just, I'm just confirming that it's true. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think that one thing, again, if you're not someone who has had these experiences, I think that, you know, it's important to put yourself in this situation of the loved ones. Not only are you not in touch with them, you're not in touch with them during a global pandemic when people could be getting sick and you don't know what's going on. So I think that there's just, again, I, it's not my experience, but I have heard that there's just added stress, just given it's just not, it's not simply that you're not hearing from them because there's a lockdown, but there's a whole other layer of concern here. I'm really glad you said that, Kevin, because I, I've had that experience in the past where you talk to, like, I've been really open about my life because I find that it's really hard to have genuine friendships if, if your friends don't know what's going on with you. You might as well not have them, right? So, so I've been open about my life, but I talk with people who don't have experience with, uh, you know, the prison system, and they, and they, they don't, you know, they kind of go, uh huh, you know, I haven't been able to talk to with my husband for a whole week because he's been locked down, uh huh, <laughs> you know, they, they just don't get it, right. they, they don't get it because it's, it's, for them, it's not like I, I had one person actually tell me. I don't know how you are able to talk to your husband on the phone every day for, you know, whatever it is, three phone calls or whatever, three 20 minute phone calls. What do you say? <laughs> because their experience, they live with the person, you know, the whole time and they don't, they don't get it. They just don't get how important it is to have, to have that experience. Yeah. I want to say too, that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was, uh, just a time at the beginning where the cell service was spotty, like just at the beginning, like the beginning of April. And there was all this stuff in the news about how we might lose cell service. You know, it was like, uh, I don't know, apocalypse scenario at that point. And, uh, and that, that struck fear in my heart and my husband's heart, because that was the only way that we could communicate. And I would not know what was going on with him. There is no other way of finding out, you know? And, um, and that is scary. That is really scary. Right, no, absolutely. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, one of the things that people, when, when they're incarcerated, look forward to is, is programming, it, whatever, whatever programming might be available. I mean, did the, was this impacted by the, uh, by the pandemic? Yeah, so, so what, what wasn't impacted was pay. Pay was not impacted. Uh, everybody kept their, their pay level 
um, all incarcerated people kept their pay level uh, as before. It was in one of those communiques that was sent by the commissioner of corrections. And uh, so that's great, that's wonderful, but work is more than just about pay <laughs> and the pay isn't that great, frankly, <laughs> inside institutions. So, um, uh, so I mean, it, it's really, there was a huge, huge loss of things to do. Um, and when you don't have, you know, uh, a st structure in your life and, you know, a, a thing to look forward to, life becomes pretty, well, boring, tedious, uh, but also, you know, you start looking for things to do, you know, and sometimes, I mean, the libraries were closed, uh, the gyms were closed, outside, access to outside for even going for walks was closed, everything was closed. I mean, it, in essence, uh, you know, everybody was in solitary confinement and it was even worse than that for, for during outbreaks. It was, it was terrible. So, um, uh, but in terms of programs, programs for people who are trying to get out early, like any kind of early release, parole or, um, are essential. The parole board, you know, uh, really relies on program reports and the fact that you just went to a program to make decisions. And so all these people were panicking, thinking it, right. it's the same as, as really high school students who are graduating, right? It's like, I can't write my exams. I can't finish my courses. What am I going to do? No, I'm, I won't be able to get into university. Right. I mean, I think maybe people can understand that the panic there, it's the same panic for somebody who's, who's coming up for a parole decision and can't access a program so that they can have a chance of getting parole. That's really interesting because a lot of the people who will watch this podcast, a good number of them are academics. And I think they might, they would identify or recognize uh, the situation because a lot of universities have kind of put a, a pause on tenure clocks, for example, recognizing that you can't do a lot of the things that you might normally be able to do to, you know, show your merit and you're worthy. I mean, what you've described is pretty much the exact same thing for incarcerated folks who aren't able to do the programs to demonstrate, you know, that they're worthy of release or whatever kind of other uh, accommodations that might be required so it's um except yeah. the difference here is not we're not talking about ten tenure we're talking about somebody's freedom yep. yep and so to me that's a lot bigger no i wasn't trying to make an equivalent <laughs> i was just trying to sort of suggest yeah. that that um mm -hmm. the the university has actually recognized yeah. this and i don't know that the the correctional system actually has? That's an interesting kind of empirical question, whether they're actually bearing this in mind in future decisions. So I guess that's what I was um, driving yeah. at. So. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of parole, I mean, there is one other thing that happened too, because I mean, I, I, I did, I attended a parole hearing for my husband during the pandemic. And uh, I was supposed to be his assistant, but he couldn't have an assistant technically. Um, I couldn't go there and be with him and you know like you get encouragement just from somebody sitting next to you somebody who cares you know he could turn to me and and look and and sort of feel you know get a sense of calm you know this is going to be okay but he couldn't have that um 
all I could do was be on the phone. And um, if I wanted to say something, uh, I, I could actually say, excuse me, I want to add something, but everybody heard everything that I said, right. <laughs> like, you know, so it's, so I didn't do it very much. I did it once actually. So um, it, I, I didn't feel like I was much of a help. And so I think that's something that people didn't think about in terms well, there, of- There was no opportunity for private confidential kind of support or sort of discussions. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess one of the things, obviously one of the key things about a pandemic is this is a medical kind of emergency and health risk. I, I thought maybe I just sort of turned to Luca for a couple minutes. Um, maybe if you had any sort of comments or insights uh, about sort of some of the health concerns that have arisen. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, that's a great question. You know, with incarceration in general, uh, but also incarceration during a pandemic, folks are dealing with all sorts of uh, health issues. And, you know, as we know, um, you know, health services within corrections aren't the greatest, um, which might be a, a bit of an understatement, uh, depending on who you speak with. Uh, and so when we were talking to uh, like loved ones of incarcerated folks, there are a number of issues around health and safety and PPE in general, um, like protective equipment that kept on coming up, especially early on uh, in our interviews. So one of the big things um, that kept coming up in our interviews was a lack of access to masks and cleaning supplies. Um, and so it seemed like at least at the beginning of the pandemic, every prison was sort of handling things a little bit differently. And again, I should just reiterate that we talked to folks with um, loved ones in federal and provincial prisons. And so I'm kind of making a bit of a broad uh, brushstroke here, but uh, every prison seemed to be handling things a bit differently. So we know that CSC, for example, had a set of procedures and protocols in place um, around these sorts of uh, situations, uh, but whether or not those were actually being followed on the ground that you know, each and every institution was not always clear or evident. Um, and to be clear, I'm not saying that, you know, when these procedures and protocols, you know, weren't being followed, um, that this was the result of some malicious intent or some, you know, laissez-faire attitude on the part of CSC. I can't speak to that based on the data that we have. Uh, but what I can say is that it seems like the local context within each prison made it more difficult or easier to implement some of the policies and practices that were in place. And that resulted in huge differences across institutions. So, you know, for instance, some larger prisons were able to rearrange some of their living units uh, to create a space to quarantine uh, suspected cases of COVID-19. And I say suspected because at the beginning of the pandemic, we have to remember, we didn't have quick access or rapid testing. And so a lot of times these decisions were being made in a kind of cautionary way. Um, so some, some prisons had, you know, were able to create spaces to quarantine uh, suspected cases of COVID-19 while others didn't have that sort of space to do so. And this resulted in, you know, differences in how prisoners at various institutions were being treated and experienced uh, incarceration during the pandemic. Um, but generally speaking, the loved ones in our study expressed ongoing fears and concerns about correctional institutions just not providing access to things 
um, like masks or you know adequate cleaning supplies. Um, and I wanted to read a short excerpt from one of our interviews, if that's okay with you, Kevin. Um, again, this was early on in the pandemic, and we asked our participant, you know, um, if they were concerned for the health and safety of their incarcerated loved one. And she replied uh, by saying, I quote, absolutely, there is no social distancing in the prison. Like I said, they gave them one bottle of disinfecting spray and said, when that's done, you get no more. There's no masks, there's no gloves, there's no nothing for them. So they're around other people all day who could potentially have COVID and you know, they're being exposed to it. Like even my husband being allowed to go back to his unit after coming home from the hospital. They don't know that, you know, he hasn't been exposed to COVID at the hospital and they're just letting him back into the prison with seven other guys. It doesn't make sense. And, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They have no clue. And I mean, I know we're all learning as we go along here, but I mean, there's procedures put in place for a reason. And they just, they just don't care. Like I've told you before, they're just numbers. That's all they are to them. And so we heard these sorts of similar kind of sentiments being uh, reported time and time again across um, our interviewers uh, as well. Um, we also heard reports from participants that in some prisons, correctional officers uh, and staff wore masks and they enforced uh, mask wearing among prisoners, especially in common areas um, or when they were outside of their cells. And then in other prisons, we heard that correctional officers were either, you know, not wearing masks on the units or wearing them below their noses or under their chins, uh, and that they didn't enforce mask wearing amongst prisoners in common spaces. And, you know, perhaps most frustrating for prisoners uh, and their loved ones who are stressed out about this situation uh, was when different teams of correctional officers working on rotation on the same unit dealt with these issues differently, right? So for example, one shift would be hyper-cautious, wearing their PPE properly and ensuring, you know, that prisoners do that as well, while the following shift of correctional officers on the same unit didn't wear masks at all or just wore them ineffectively. And so these sorts of inconsistencies really created a lot of stress for prisoners who obviously not only wanted to avoid being sanctioned, right? So now I'm supposed to wear it, now I don't have to wear it, and you get in trouble for those things, but they obviously also wanted to avoid catching COVID uh, or causing even worse, causing their unit to be locked down for two weeks uh, of quarantine uh, and being the cause of that because you weren't wearing your, your PPE properly. Um, again, like there are lots of other inconsistencies. Like we heard that, you know, some units on some in some institutions were being sprayed down and disinfected on a weekly basis while other institutions um, were, were kind of in the opposite extreme. They weren't handing out cleaning supplies at all and would just, you know, allow prisoners to keep, um, that would allow their, allow prisoners to keep their cells in their common spaces sort of disinfected. So it seems, you know, ex like experiences around mass wearing and cleaning supplies just really, really varied. Um, but I, I should say that it, it does seem from our interviews, at least, um, that institutions really started to get a bit better at providing PPE and cleaning products as the pandemic went on. So we saw like a huge problem or reported problems right at the beginning for the first few months. And um, there was a sort of slow to start on that. And then it improved as, as time went on. 
So were there, um, Joy, did you want to add anything to that or? Well, I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to add a couple of things. Um, first of all, uh, I totally, I'm totally with, with everything that you, that you talked about, Luca, that's exactly been my experience through others, including my husband. Um, uh, I wanted to add uh, that the, you know, the, the fact that you, you notice that there's differences between prisons and that's something that is is just has always been there um, for every issue. It's a lot ha has to do with the warden and you know the the other managerial staff in the prison as how things roll out. There isn't. It's not like a one size fits all for prisons. Every prison is different, and it has to do with how it's run. Mm. Um, and the other thing I wanted to add is that um, is that. Uh, the comment about not wanting to have their unit locked down, uh, you know, and a lot of times this is actually counterproductive to the control of COVID because people will pretend that they're not sick uh, to try and to try and prevent the lockdown because it's not just it doesn't just affect them it affects everybody and so they would try and and hide it and and so I think you know that's. And that's something that's uh, part of the the culture, you know, in prisons, right? Is is you know keep a low profile and don't try and make life bad for everybody else because <laughs> there's going to be consequences. So for COVID, that's that's that could be a big problem. Anyway, that's what I wanted to add. And I'll just sort of reiterate. I mean, this is something that I heard doing my interviews for the loved ones that that sometimes people suspected that they might have COVID and they didn't report it. But also, you know, there's a there's a certain degree of ambiguity around am I sick or am I not? And they just didn't want to lock down. So they would kind of just keep to themselves. And, and uh, you know, so there are other institutional agendas at play in terms of who you tell and trust, trust issues uh, throughout the whole institution. So um, one, one of the... Um, at least the early efforts was to try and deinstitutionalize some people, to try and reduce the prison population, to make some quick and dirty assessments about who might get released and who didn't have to be in. Um, I was wondering, you know, maybe back to Luca again about sort of how this issue might have played out among some of your participants. And I do want to get back to Joanne on this as well. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, this was, you know, maybe one of the the positive things that might have come out of this uh, this whole pandemic experience, um, you know, at least for some incarcerated folks, <clears throat> um, it, it's that during the first few months of the pandemic, uh, governments across Canada took steps to reduce the prison population to try and avoid, obviously, the spread of COVID within within the system. Uh, and so I have some you know some stats here. So you know between February and May 2020, um, we saw a 19% reduction in the overall prison population across Canada. So that's provincial, territorial, uh, and federal. Now, most of this, to be fair, was a reduction in the provincial and territorial systems. Um, and really, such a rapid and stark decrease of this prison population is, is really unprecedented uh, in, in the Canadian context. Uh, so again, between February and May 2020, uh, the average count of adults 
in provincial and territorial custody fell by 28%. Now the, the federal system also enacted uh, some measures to reduce the prison population, but their efforts were you know, less fruitful. So there were only um, a 6%, there was only a 6% decrease of the federal uh, prison population during that time, which I guess would make sense if we consider uh, you know, that federal, prisoner, fed, federal prisons tend to house uh, offenders charged with more serious offenses and therefore the threshold for release is presumably higher. And uh, Joanne, how did, uh, what was the perception among some of the, either yourself or some of the other uh, people that you engage with about sort of the, uh, this process? Um, you know, I, I actually, I, I heard about it in the news. I didn't see anything. Right. <laughs> and I think one of the things is that um, it, it really isn't up to, to the Correctional Service of Canada to release people. It's up to the, the Parole Board of Canada to release people. And so they have a different agenda and they also have to have to respond to. So there is no other way to release people uh, mm -hmm. in general than through um, the Pearl Board of Canada. And so uh, that I know of anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so that makes it really hard for, uh, for federal corrections to actually make a, a difference um, that way. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised to hear about the numbers in, in the, provincial, the provincial numbers and happy, but I kind of wonder, um, I guess I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> weren't those more to do with, sorry, weren't those more to do with, um, you know, the courts slowing down and, and uh, re reduction in admissions? Right. It took an effort uh, across the criminal justice system. Uh, so police, you know, police services making the decision to maybe charge less, the courts maybe making the decision to incarcerate less, uh, and then the parole boards making the decisions to release more. Uh, so I think lots of things had to sort of come together uh, in order for those numbers to, to be where they were. And um, just in terms of my, my participants, I mean, generally, the, I think the, uh, the consensus was that people were thrilled that their loved ones were going to get out. But the, there was also this kind of little interesting tension, particularly at the beginning, about are they leaving an institution that's infected? Is, I mean, is there the chance that, you know, my loved one is coming out of prison come and, you know, for people who had, you know, I, again, at the early days, we didn't know who had children at home, who had elderly people at home. So there was a concern about, are the people who are being released, are they safe, uh, medically speaking? And so, again, I think that that waned over the months. And certainly now that the vaccination, vaccination rate is well, it is actually quite high in comparison to parts of the general population that's waned. But that was an interesting, for a period there, that was interesting. Luca, what were you going to say? <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to jump in there because we heard, we heard exactly that from our participants. Um, we obviously heard a lot of, you know, hopes, um, you know, about loved ones being released from prison due to these decarceration efforts. But like you said, there were a lot of anxieties and fears uh, about this same process amongst some of our participants. So, you know, what's normally a, a joyous occasion for many family members with an incarcerated loved one became a real cause of stress for some people. Um, and that's not something at least that I was really anticipating. Um, 
And so we had participants, for instance, whose, you know, whose loved ones had serious mental health issues or issues with addictions, for example. And, you know, they were worried uh, about their loved one being released from prison. Mm -hmm. And not only the concerns about bringing COVID back, you know, to, into the home, but also being released from prison and then returning to life on the streets. Yeah. Um, so aside from what would, you know, be typical concerns among the loved ones of someone experiencing homelessness or street life, for instance, things like, you know, being worried about your loved one having a drug overdose or being victimized or going hungry or not having shelter or access to medical treatment. Um, our, our participants also worried about their kin catching and succumbing to COVID yeah. on the streets. Uh, because they didn't have access to some of the basic necessities of life. And so, you know, generally speaking, COVID really exacerbated uh, many of the challenges and fears and concern that were already present among loved ones of incarcerated people in Canada. But then, uh, you know, with the, in, with the sort of uh, influx of COVID in, into the system and onto our streets that really sort of amped up those fears and concerns. Mm -hmm. So Joanne, I'm going to go, you'd mentioned earlier some sort of concerns about sort of information, what you could learn and what you couldn't learn. But before, but so I'm going to go to you uh, on that in a second, but I was wondering if you had any other sort of comments about the medical situation or concerns about health? Well, I mean, just a, a little personal frustration. Uh, you know, like I said, my, my husband was released during, uh, during COVID. Um, he was released in um, the summer of last year. And, um, and he, um, he, you know, he, he was, he, there's, it's, this is the part of the arbitrariness of, of how things can happen. Um, he was told that I couldn't go pick him up. So that he had to be picked, he had to be transported by, by uh, people from the institution. Uh, to the halfway house, and I had to somehow find a way to get him his stuff because he didn't have anything, of course. <laughs> and so um, it, when we we figured that all out and did it, and and he and he had to um, he had to uh, isolate for two weeks after that, right? Um, and and when we when we figured that out, uh, when we sort of went and did this, it turned out that that wasn't true. That was something that was made up by the institution right. and that, that people had been picked up before. So, I mean, it's, there's frustrations like that all the time and you never know where that comes from. Right. So um, one, of, one of my participants, her loved one was re released and he moved in with her. Um, and this was in the very early stages of COVID. And one of the things that she described to me and her concern was that they weren't getting great information about what COVID was, how to manage it, how, to, and she, he, he was, again, he was, he was released during the, I think we would call the, oh my God stage, what is going on here? What's happening? And so he, she described him being home and sort of saying things like, well, let's, let's, let's go, let's do something. Let's go to the mall. And she's like, no, there is no mall. <laughs> the malls are boarded up. So he he hadn't, you know, he hadn't quite appreciated what the reality of it was just because they hadn't been informed. And again, I would imagine going back to Lucas' point, I would imagine that would vary dramatically by institution in terms of what, how informed they had been about kind of the, the risks. So, but I did want to get to you about the informational concern in terms of 
what you were able to learn um, from who, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I learned a lot from, from my husband because he, he would uh, get the communiques from uh, the commissioner's office and, and uh, he would read them to me over the phone. <laughs> so that was, that was cool. I mean, um, so I, I, I got information from there. Um, I, there, there is, there is limited, limited information. I heard from at least a couple of people, like one of the earliest outbreaks was at mission institution and that caused a lot of, I mean, there was even a death associated with it. And, um, and that caused a lot of, uh, fear in a lot of people. And uh, I got a couple of calls from people who, whose, whose loved ones were in there and they were saying, you know, uh, I call the institution to try and get information. I'm not getting phone calls from my son or whatever. And, uh, and all they tell me is check the website. Well, the website doesn't say anything about your son or you know, <laughs> your spouse or whatever. It just says how many, how many numbers there are. <laughs> You know, and so, um, so that was that was really frustrating for them. Um, and I also heard from from someone at the beginning too that um, there there was there was um, correctional officers going back and forth uh, between you know a, a medium and a minimum institution. And, you know, and even during that outbreak at Mission Institution, because they didn't have any other staff, they right. always, uh, you know, uh, used the same staff in, in both institutions and they, and they kept doing it because they didn't have a choice. And of course, with COVID, there was a lot of them that were isolating. And, and so that also, there was the fear because I, I knew somebody else who, who, whose husband was in the minimum there and she was afraid that he was going to get sick and you know so um so yeah so there was not that much information um there was no there seems to be no plan for long-term infection management um th there never was from the beginning and i mean their plan really was lock people up and hope for the best and that's always their plan anyway, so it's not surprising. <laughs> um, so uh, there's no information on visits and when visits are going to resume, as far as I know, I haven't heard anything. Oh, yeah. um, and no information on private family visits, uh, which are really important to a lot of people. Um, there, there haven't been any of those since the beginning of the pandemic. And... Um, you mentioned before your your work with some of the support groups and voluntary organizations. Were they able to sort of step up and fill some of the informational void? Well, um, no, that's kind of me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, I only know what everybody else knows, and and that's and that's the problem right. is that there there haven't been any any information and so people were would come and they they would like i would say for the last uh few months um since we started having in-person in-person meetings again uh, people would would come and it was all this this anxiety over i mean it used to be that we talked about 
everything else, but now we were always talking about COVID. Right. <laughs> and COVID this and COVID that and how how can we how can we deal with this and when things when are things going to change and um but there are no answers unfortunately i mean there still are no answers so um yeah so, so we've been talking generally about incarcerated folks but there's lots of different groupings and categories and people have different experiences and different backgrounds so maybe just i'd turn to luca and you've maybe uh, you get any sense of how this might have played itself out differently amongst different groupings of people or um, yeah, there's lots of different ways to carve this up. Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I don't know that I can like confidently speak on like the, those sorts of nuances just yet. And that, that's partly because we're not speaking with the, you know, the incarcerated people themselves, uh, but also because we just haven't coded the data yet. But I can say anecdotally, you know, from the participants that I spoke with firsthand uh, and in reading some of the, the raw data, uh, I, I can say that, you know, the pandemic really seems to have kind of exacerbated the plight of prisoners, you know, generally across the country. And, you know, that's because as we know, incarcerated people um, tend to already be, you know, coming from extremely marginalized and, and vulnerable populations to begin with. Uh, and that's for a variety of reasons. And then, so when you layer kind of COVID on top of that, it kind of compounds that marginalization and vulnerability. So <clears throat> you have a group of people confined, you know, to a physical space who don't have the luxury of, you know, being in control of their own physical surroundings and space, uh, who don't always have access to PPE, who don't have unfettered access to their family and kin and social support. Um, you know, as Joanne had mentioned, uh, who don't have, you know, timely access to healthcare even. Uh, and that includes mental health support. So I think, you know, that compared to the general public, you know, currently incarcerated people are experiencing a much more difficult pandemic than those of us in the, in the free world. But I guess I could also say that, you know, there are particular groups of people, um, you know, of this already sort of vulnerable population that are experiencing imprisonment maybe more harshly than others during COVID. And, you know, when I say that, I want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that, you know, some prisoners have it easier than others. What I'm saying is that the pandemic seems to have had perhaps more of an impact on some groups uh, than others. So if we think about, you know, elderly folks or people with pre-existing mental health issues, so why would that be the case? Well, you know, if, you, if we think about the pandemic and, and what it's caused, it's caused a lot of things to change within the prison environment, as we've heard. Um, you know, in-person visitations, for example, were canceled and are still out. Um, and those have been replaced with virtual visits. Um, you know, and we know from our interviews that incarcerated people who are elderly or experience mental health issues have found it difficult to negotiate these kind of new processes of staying in touch with family and friends. Um, you know, they require paperwork and putting in requests and having the technology uh, on the other end of that call, um, the ability and the willingness to negotiate that new technology. So these are things that, again, you know, all of us have been forced to adjust to both incarcerated and in the free world, but that some populations within prison, I think, that have had a more difficult time uh, managing. And of course, that's just resulted in uh, you know, as Joanna has mentioned, fewer points of contact, right? Uh, and as a result, perhaps worsen mental health outcomes 
particularly for you know, our elderly populations uh, in prison and, and those who have been experiencing uh, mental health challenges. Well, I mean, and also on the physical health thing, I mean, we know that COVID is more risky or dangerous for people with pre-existing health conditions. And if you're going to look for a population that disproportionately had a large number of pre-existing health populations, a prison would be very high up on the list. So yeah, that's another yeah. kind of group. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I do want to add about the technology because I think, you know, that's, that's an important thing to stress. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, like last year, um, I, I tried to have um, online meetings, uh, support group meetings for people, and I gave up. Um, it, it was just too hard for people to get with it, to, to all have the right technology and know how to use it. And there was uh, interruptions all the time. And, and that's why we went back to in-person and we're, we're uh, physically distancing and wearing masks and all that stuff. But it's just something that's a reality. Not everyone has access to the right equipment or knows how to use it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's been a that's been a theme throughout. That sometimes, some I think sometimes it pops up, and often then it just gets ignored or forgotten. So that's a good reminder. I guess you know we're more than a year into this at this point. So I just wanted to ask me both of you, looking back over the last you know um, twelve plus months, what do you think corrections could have or should have done differently? I mean, with hindsight, maybe one of the things we should, you know, we should have done. So maybe I'll go to Joanne first, if you're, if you're good with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the, the most important things was to have a little more consistency um, in terms of infe infection control to, to make sure that, that, uh, that staff were following, you know, the, the rules. Um, wearing masks uh, and not working in multiple places, like I said before. Um, I think that would have really been helpful if that was enforced better in all institutions. Um, another thing was um, better communication with families. And I know that's, that's never been a forte of, of the correctional service, but, um, but at this time when everyone was so uh, concerned and even in some cases panicked about it. Um, you know, I mean, they could have, they could have done, they could have uh, thought about things and maybe put together a web page or something where people could go and get general information and then have, you know, have a way to a contact page of who to contact for more specific information for people. Uh, I think one of the things that I, I didn't say yet, and I really want to stress, is the importance of family members for those who are incarcerated. They are their lifeline to the real world. Otherwise they get lost in, in, in prison life. And it, it just, they, they, um, they change. They, they, don't, they, they lose contact with what the world's really like and they begin to see the world in a very different light in there. And it is, I, I think, really it is high time that, the, that CSC discovered the importance of people, of family members, you know, who want to help instead of really how they in, I'm not saying, I'm not saying everyone, but in general, family members are treated as uh, 
obstacles at best and enemies at worst, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I think that's one of the things that, that could have changed a lot. Uh, maybe they could, they could hire, each institution could hire a communications liaison officer um, just to keep contact with family members. Um, it, it's just one salary, <laughs> you know, and they could, they could do the web, web page and they could, they could call people when, when, you know, their family members are ill or dying or dead, which they don't, you know, off, often they don't do, you know. Um, so um, it, it's those, I think that's an important thing. And um, I, I just think it's important for, uh, I mean, if CSC saw family members as allies more, then things would change uh, a lot for everybody, for, for society as a whole, for the institutions, because you know, behavior improves in there with contact with family members and, um, and for, for when people get out because then they didn't lose that contact with the world and they know how to assimilate back into society. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great series of observations. Uh, Luca, what are your thoughts on sort of looking back? Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, we, we asked our participants this very similar question uh, and we, we got a, a wide variety of answers. But to be frank, the most, the most common, um, at least at first glance, just sort of parsing over the data, is that most of our participants really just expressed deep frustration and doubt that any meaningful change would come to Canadian corrections in light of the pandemic, which is really dis disheartening, but totally, totally understandable. Um, their view was that, you know, our correctional system is deeply broken and that the provincial and federal systems are not going to listen to any suggestions for improvement or for change. And, you know, while and I should say, while participants in our study were, you know, really appreciative that we had undertaken this work ourselves, uh, this study, many of them were very frank with us, I would say the majority and expressed doubt that, you know, any meaningful change would come as a result of our work. And again, not for lack of trying, but because they viewed changing the correctional system to be, you know, outside, uh, from the outside to be, you know, practically impossible, sort of like, you know, trying to move the Titanic without a, without a wheel or whatever. So, um, but, you know, then there were all obviously some more practical, uh, you know, what could we have done, what could they have done differently um, points that were being made throughout. Um, we heard some hope uh, from our participants that the pandemic would at least shed light on many of the kind of glaring issues surrounding incarceration in Canada. So things that were once hidden and, you know, behind, behind the, the bars are now sort of being um, illuminated a little bit. Um, things like, you know, improving ventilation in prisons, uh, providing better and more PPE, handing out more cleaning supplies, better and more nutritious food so that people aren't getting sick uh, to begin with and that health is generally improved. Uh, clearer communication as Joanne has already mentioned. Um, we also, again, heard from uh, many that their incarcerated loved ones were experiencing serious mental health issues because of being locked down above and beyond what is normally uh, a day in, in, in a Canadian institution. Um, and also experiencing mental health issues because of 
just a wide variety of changes made to the otherwise sort of routinized sort of process of daily life within uh, within the system. And Kevin, you and Sandra have, have written about this. So, um, you know, things like ad hoc lockdowns or, you know, canceled visitations or the, the halting and restarting of programming at a sort of on a whim. Or, you know, again, something I mentioned before was just the, the sort of differences in how uh, staff wore and, and handled wearing uh, and enforcing PPE requirements. All of these things have serious consequences on people who are incarcerated because it affects their day-to-day -day life and their mental health and their ability to establish some sort or semblance of sort of normalcy and routine in an environment where there isn't a lot of control over those over, over daily life, really. Um, and so, yeah, that was sort of like the general um, gist from the, from the interviews, at least. So to, to reiterate, we're, it's early June, 2021. What do we think comes next? Like, what do you, I mean, predicting the future is not the forte of sociologists, that's for sure. Um, but just generally, do either of you have any sense about how things are going to evolve from this point forward? Yes, from my experience, it's going to be a very, very slow return to any of the activities that used to be there before the pandemic. Um, this sort of situation um, where, you know, there's, there's a lot more control over the movement of, of people who are incarcerated is really ideal for the Correctional Service of Canada. <laughs> And they're going to be very reluctant to to um, to put things back. Um, my husband strongly believes in this. That once once CSC takes something away, it's very very hard, if not impossible, to get it back. And so um, so I think there might be more limits to visits. Um, there might be more limits to movements within the institution. Um, and, um, you know, there, there might be, yeah, I mean, I think it's very, it's just not, not going to go back very fast and some things they'll, they'll not get back. And I feel, um, very sad about that actually. Yeah. Luca, do you have any sense of sort of predicting the future? Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to dip my toes into that one. I'm not sure about. Although I, I, I should say that I, you know, I, I, I do sort of echo Joanne's sentiments. I think there was a lot of of those same uh, concerns uh, coming from participants uh, in our study that they worry about. You know, just how long is it going to take to actually get, you know, uh, a, a family visit back once everybody we know everyone's been vaccinated and things are back to normal and then what is that normal going to look like you know are we going to constantly have to wear masks are we going to now have to sit 12 feet apart instead of six or right next to each other and so um i think what's going to come next uh, in one word i just uncertainty I, I i don't know and i don't think folks know so we're, we're getting near the end here so i like to sort of finish by abstracting up in terms of like the big picture so maybe if for joanne i mean is it possible to think about what might be the main lesson that Canadian citizens or politicians might have taken from this kind of experience to date? 
Well, I, I, I have a few lessons. <laughs> um, I think the biggest lesson for me is that, is that I, I hope that um, maybe criminologists and then maybe others um, sort of get an understanding that the Correctional Service of Canada has way too much power um, over, uh, over incarcerated people. And that, um, that I, I really think that they, it is hugely required that we have an oversight body that has teeth, that has the ability to, to um, compel change within the Correctional Service of Canada. I mean, I think Luca, you were talking about earlier about how um, family members didn't believe there, were, there was gonna ever be any change. And uh, all you have to do is read, um, the report, the annual reports of the correctional investigator going back to the beginning of the of the office and see that the issues were the same, the same, the same, and the recommendations were the same, the same, the same, and nothing ever changed. Right. So, um, so that's the first thing. Um, I hope, I hope um, that that uh, families can be seen as important uh, going forward. Um, and that uh, the correctional service uh, and, uh, and provincial corrections as well, work with them um, to make things better rather than seeing them as adversaries like they do now. Um, and I'm, I'm talking in general, I'm not sure. saying everybody does. Sure. Um, definitely there's staff members that are very, very um, helpful and very friendly, and they do see the value of families. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I think the other lesson is that, and it's the same as the other as the first one I made, but but I think that people who are incarcerated, people need to understand that they are really at the mercy of this system of control. Yeah. What we really need to do is ensure that everyone, uh, we find a way that to make everyone treated humanely who's incarcerated and, uh, and with dignity, um, no matter what they've done. And that's not true right now. Um, and so I think that's one of the, the big changes. I, one of the things that I would really like to see is is the introduction of independent advocates for for people who are incarcerated, especially people with um, uh, cognitive um, uh, dysfunctions and also um, mental mental health uh, problems, right? And I think that a lot of times, um, not families are not there for everyone, and so sometimes people need other people. Um, other than families to help them through the system. People get get lost sometimes. So those are my things. Great, uh, Luca, maybe you wanna just put your sociologist or criminologist hat on. So are there things you know, that there are lessons that for criminology, maybe things that either we learned or maybe things that challenged us or things that affirm what we knew already? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, I think. You know that within the Canadian context, in particular, we, as you know, Kevin, we actually know very little about the lived experiences of you know currently incarcerated people in this country. Uh, 
our research with the UAPP and the work of others in, in this field in Canada is really shedding light, however slowly, on the Canadian experiences of incarceration. So I think adding this sort of COVID element uh, to the research really pushes it forward in a way that's, uh, that's, that's important. But generally, uh, you know, I think that the pandemic has really solidified just how, I guess, just how difficult incarceration is for prisoners and their loved ones. Um, and it's just, you know, from our, from our discussions with, with folks, it seems to have really amplified, you know, feelings of loneliness and isolation and lack of control and vulnerability and familial, familial stresses and stressors that, you know, are, are baked into the very experience of incarceration normally, uh, but that have really become kind of hyper apparent and present uh, because of this global pandemic. And then finally, you know, maybe prison scholars in particular, uh, as you know, Kevin, really love to talk about, you know, the pains of imprisonment. And I think that, you know, examining the impact of, uh, of this global pandemic on uh, incarcerated people and their loved ones re really highlights some of the sort of unique pains that might come along with being incarcerated or having a loved one who is incarcerated during a kind of international and global uh, emergency and pandemic. Uh, so I'll leave it there. So I think I think we've covered a remarkable range of topics, but it's always possible and probably likely that there are things that maybe we should have talked about that we didn't get to. So I just wanted to sort of turn it over to um, both of you or either of you, or were there things that you thought maybe we want we should have talked about or comments that you think uh, we should get out there? Maybe Joanne, was there anything additionally that you wanted to raise? Uh not really, no. I, I think we covered a lot. Um, and I really appreciated uh, having this opportunity to speak. Uh, it's, it's helpful for people to hear um, what it's really like. And, and we will do our best to sort of publicize this to make sure people actually hear it. So Luca, was there anything else you wanted to sort of raise or put on the table? Um, not really. I mean, just like, like a one, one final point, really, I guess, is um, you know, I think for, for members of the, of the general public, I think this was a little bit of an enlightening moment, this pandemic, I think. And like, I remember, you know, being on social media right at the beginning when, when this whole thing kicked off, uh, and, you know, people on Twitter and Instagram were making memes or posting posts about, you know, being locked down inside of their homes, being akin to, being incarcerated or being in prison, in prison, right. uh, you know, whether that, that being satirical or not. Um, but maybe this, this whole experience, uh, you know, has, I don't know, shed light a little bit on the, on the various sort of mental health challenges that emerge um, as a result of incarceration. Right. Um, you know, and being locked down for more than a, than a year, as a free person has influenced me and impacted me immensely. And so I hope that if, if the general public takes anything sort of away from, from this experience and what it might be like for, for incarcerated people, I hope that they see incarceration, um, you know, as, 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 as what it is, is it's, a, it's an inhumane form of, of punishment. I think a lot of people see it as a sort of 
club, what is it, club fed, club fed or whatever, right? Like that it's a walk in the park. Um, you know, folks locked down with their, you know, on, on stay at home orders with their, you know, PS5s and the ability to have people over in their backyard are seriously struggling. And I'm not diminishing everyone's experiences in the free world, right? Like I said, I've, I've also experienced my own set of challenges that have come along with being on lockdown orders. But I just, you know, maybe this has just provided some, I don't know, some insights into what it might be like times, you know, a million for people who, you know, are actually incarcerated at the moment and all of the challenges that they're going through uh, normally and, and right now. Great. I think that's a, a, a great um, and very useful point to finish on. So maybe I just want to thank both of you. And I also want to thank Joanne for her hard work with her sort of uh, volunteer community group. And uh, stay tuned for more of these. And thanks again to both of you. And I will hit stop record. Thank, thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Once again, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and most other places that podcasts are found. If you're in the Apple Podcast Store, give us a nice five-star rating. It helps with the search algorithm. And remember to follow us on social media. Twitter, it's at CCR underscore U of A. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research and like our videos and, uh, and subscribe. Thank you very much and we hope you'll join us for the next one.